This week's episode is brought to you by audible.com. To get a free audiobook download and 30-day trial, visit audibletrial.com slash inside outside. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash inside outside to download your free audiobook today. Also, Dillashaw LLC. Not all attorneys are focused on startup legal issues. From setting up your entity to vesting agreements and term sheets, Bard has experience and connections working with startups everywhere and has been a trusted resource for startups in the Valley, Austin, and around the Midwest. We started thinking about what's really important to startups marketing, user onboarding, cash flow. After a quick discussion, we found that most companies really care about that overall funnel that drives your business, or as Dave McClure likes to call it, pirate metrics. This week's talk is part one of a two-part series on the funnel. Also on today's show, we have Tim Sprinkle. We've had a lot of interesting people on the show, but definitely no one as interesting as someone who's written a book called Screw the Valley. We caught up with Tim, author of said book, to discuss economic development, startup cultures around the world, and to give us insight into what's really happening with tech outside the valley. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is the podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside, your look into startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And I'm Paul Jarrett. This week, we're going to be talking about the funnel, the entire journey of the customer and how they come into your app, how they pay, and how they retain. Sounds good. Sounds so like, who starts? <laughs> sounds like a pretty exciting topic. If it's going to be me. a two-parter. Well, the f- two parts. <laughs> two part one, yeah, part two. I mean, this is a pretty the big return, topic. The return of it. Um, Matt, you mentioned earlier that you know there's kind of the pirate metrics funnel and the normal kind of general funnel. I think that's a good place to start for this topic. Um, the the I think the one that comes to mind for me almost always is Dave McClure's marketing like a pirate. R, A A R R R. Yep, got it. Um, first A. Is but what would you say? Kind of the what, first A. First A. We're going into it. Already. We're going. Yeah. Well, let's let's. We're we running. Talk We're running about the. We're running. First A acquisition. Yes. First of all, you know how to get people into your funnel. How do you find them? How do you get them to? Pay attention to what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to to marketing of, of various types. Um, you know, however you're acquiring customers, I think you know when it comes to pirate metrics, it's 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 a great starting point. But every every business has its own kind of version of this, its own funnel, and you have to be very cognizant 100% of. Hundred percent agree. Um, you know, like e-commerce companies are going to be totally different than yep. software. Well, yeah, the, the details of the funnel are going to be different, but the actual uh, acquisition. So the funnel is you got to acquire customers, you got to activate them somehow, mm-hmm. get them to engage with you. You've got to retain them. You've got to get some type of revenue or you're not going to be in business. And then you've got to have some type of referral or, you know, how do you complete the loop and get them to talk about you? So basically, they show up, you sell them, you keep them around, you make sure you make money off of them, and then you tell them to go tell their friends about you. That's basically the funnel. That's the funnel, right? That's like any yeah. general sell. But I think. But uh, the nuances and the differences, yeah, depending on the type of business and everything else, yeah, is right. where we're going to spend some time. So where does. When when I'm, I already know the answer to this question that I want to hear, but I'm curious what you guys say. <laughs> like, where does this all start off? Like, like developing your funnel. Like, where where what is the kind of like seed of that thing? Because you know, 
if I just started, I remember when we started, I didn't even know the funnel existed and I had been in marketing for 10 years and it was the first time I'd heard of like funnels, but not the specific kind of marketing, like a pirate funnel. Um, and I thought it was a little bit like, um, um, it wasn't very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty basic, but as I kind of dug into it and I understood what you said, Matt, is like it's particular to every business. That's really when things kind of opened up. So, ten-year marketing advertising person, you know, t- crawling like a baby, figuring it out. Um, but what would you say is the most important thing before you even start working on your funnel that you need to do with kind of like your advertising and marketing? We probably I, I've seen where a lot of people start focusing on the metrics and that too early. The first thing you should do is just get a couple customers, <laughs> one customer, five customers, a hundred customers, a thousand customers before you start trying to optimize a funnel or, or understand because your funnel is probably going to change based on all sorts of things that you try. So I think the first thing you need to do is again, get somebody to buy your product mm-hmm. or you or interact with your right. company in some way and start understanding what that journey is. Yep. So, How do they find you? Um, why would they want to talk to you? Why would they open their wallet? Why would they come back to you and start mapping out that journey of the customer? Mm-hmm. What are a couple of ways that people can do that? I mean, so obviously you, and, and every business is different. Um, some, some people are a little bit more old school and they do, you know, magazine, pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, magazine. <laughs> what is that? Um, no, we've done magazines at Bullet Box. So. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a thing. I mean, it's, um, a little bit old school, but it, it's a thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways. The big push is content. So, uh, you know, spending a lot of the bulk of the resources and getting people into that funnel and content, you know, if you simply focus on content, uh, that is massively different depending on the business that you're in. Um, so I think you just have to be very, very, uh, keenly aware on what type of business you are. Business. Did I just say business? For what? show. <laughs> my Southern Missouri is coming yeah, out. My business, right? Uh, yeah, just like. I don't like it. Won't be it. <laughs> uh, just be, be very, uh, very cognizant on you know um, what type of customer you have, and I always like to think about it in, in terms of. And I may have talked about this before, but uh, you know, low value, high volume customer versus mm. uh, high high right. value, low volume. So it, yep. you know, if you're if you're a, a company who you know you get three leads a week, but each one of those leads is a potential for, you know, a quarter million dollars in business. Well, then that's a lot different of a proposition than some, a company uh, like my previous company, we had a hundred companies a day signing up, but each company's LTV is $600. Right. So I think one of the better ways to start is thinking about who is your customer and understanding that customer persona. If you have a better idea of who that customer is, what do they read, what do they like, where do they hang out, you'll have a much better idea of where to put your money to try to acquire those customers. But if you haven't sold anything, you don't really know. True, you have to experiment. I mean, but you you go out with an assumption and say, okay, Mm. I mean, most most companies out there have a basic idea of, I think we're going to sell it to you know women twenty five to thirty five or whatever. So okay, that's a starting place, and you got to test that assumption and, and see if that's actually the, the truth or, or actually who's going to buy it. And that often case, oftentimes is the case that it isn't the typical customer that you have. Yeah. Um, I know that you have, uh, you've talked about a number of times where you thought your customers were going to be totally different than the ones yeah. that ended up being the ones that are the core <laughs> yeah, business sure. that you're at. So we, uh, um, when we started our company, um, we 
actually, it was a little bit of advice, but it was a little bit like just not knowing any better. Um, but we actually launched and we thought that we were going to appeal to females and males um, to like 22 to 34 and um, that were interested in health and vitamins and supplements specifically. Um, when we launched, it was good, but it wasn't nearly as fast as we wanted to. And I think a lot of people... Um, that we were surrounding ourselves with were actually like, you need to look at a bigger market. Like you need to add like healthy snacks. You need to, we, oh, like the amount of times that I heard somebody say like, you should appeal to like baby boomers. Like, <laughs> like was, that was, I, I don't disagree with it, but it was like, you know, to me it was just expanding the audience. And then when, when we really, really looked and I, and I'm talking like, is Facebook stalking our first users and like reading what they're posting. Like it was clear that our audience was much smaller. Um, I'm not going to get specifics to the world and on who we're targeting. Um, but it was uh, one gender and it was like literally probably like a 10 or 20 year age range. Um, and they were looking for very specific things. And once we, you know, really kind of like uh, there's a kind of a $30 billion plus market in vitamins and supplements. And we probably focused on like, uh, probably like a $4 billion market within that. I mean, that's when things really took off. So counter, it was like counterintuitive, right? Like we're advertising and everybody's saying like, make your market bigger, make your market bigger. Um, and we actually went the complete opposite way of like, just focus on who's actually clicking the purchase button. Like that's all that matters. And then I think our sales like quadrupled in probably about 30 or 60 days. Yeah. Here's a question. So if your sales, um, let's, let's say that your sales are, are remaining the same or, or they're upticking, but you know, not at that quite at that rate. Um, how do you measure that? Uh, how do you measure that you, you're actually reaching the audience that you want that? I mean, so what are a few core measurements that, that, kind of show yes we're we're tracking within this very specific customer persona that we want so he's saying how do you know that the audience that you're creating advertising and marketing for is actually the audience that's buying it um we've got to survey your customers you gotta you gotta talk to your customers i think that's the first and foremost thing is like who's who is your product actually resonating with so I would say like with, in, in our case, we have the luxury of people create a profile um, or you can, you know, click to sign in with Facebook or, or, you know, whatever is, we actually incentivize people with rewards points to fill out their profile. Mm. Um, but it, it's, I hate to say it, but like marketing and advertising is actually like much easier with e-commerce, but it's ruthless on the metrics part. Mm. Right. So if you're an app or if you're a software or whatever it is, it's actually way more challenging to kind of like figure out your funnel and figure out all those things. Um, But you have a lot more kind of play in the metrics area. Whereas e-commerce, there's a ton of standardized tools set up that you can use. Um, But people are ruthless on the metrics. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and um, uh, there's there's pros and cons with it. But I think before before you do a damn thing you need to truly sit down and like determine what success looks like, like what is successful. That's probably the biggest mistake that I see people making is they say, okay, we're going to run Twitter ads. Right. Yeah. And they don't write down and I'm talking like physically write down what does success look like? And that might be 
sales. It might be clicks. It might be landing pages. Uh, what are you trying to achieve? What's the goal? Yeah. And if it may not be what you actually end up with, but you have to put a stake in the ground and say, okay, here's what our test is going to do. Or yep. This is what we're expecting it to do. And then you have something to measure against and see if you're actually on the right track or and, not. And what happens a lot of times too is that like people might not do get what they wanted out of it, but they don't analyze what they got out of it. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Like, like, oh, I didn't get sales from my Twitter ads, but like, I got a bazillion yeah, you don't put clicks. A, if you don't like, put well, a, okay, you got something. Like, build on that. Yeah. If, if you don't put a line in the sand, you don't know if you've been over it, over under it. Where are you at? Yeah. Um, and so it's much, much more difficult to make a decision based on that. So I think it's uh, it's very, very important. I mean, this is why personas are are key, is because if you understand, you know, how your customer thinks and how your customer speaks and and all of this kind of thing, you can actually write to them and you right. can, I mean, this is, uh, you know, we dug into HubSpot quite a bit and HubSpot is, is core for this. Like in HubSpot, you build out a persona, then you launch, you know, landing pages, you launch eBooks, you launch tons of evergreen content specifically for these personas. And you can see how, how, uh, that specific content is tracking within the, those specific personas. So I think, I think tools like HubSpot, Marketo, um, all of these types Pardo. of <laughs> Is that a yeah, thing? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. I have a friend who works there. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm trying to, trying to, um, I don't know. There's always something new, right? On that yeah. front. Yeah. And, uh, sales loft is a good one for B2B to understand and kind of find those leads, um, on the B2B side. What is the, the best kind of marketing software that you've used? That's a good question. Um, and I would say specifically to like tracking and measuring. Um, I was just at a, a an event on, with founders, and this was like the like number one question. It, it depends kind on what of, you yeah. consider marketing. So, uh, for me, running an app, uh, even the messaging within the app is marketing. Um, onboarding is marketing. Um, so if if that is considered marketing, which some right. people loosely believe that is. Um, yeah, you know, mix panel I think is is key. Mix panel is like just the most important. But if thing. you if you change something within kind of the uh, architecture or how your 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 product is built, though, like that kind of throws out all the previous mix panel metrics, right? As long as you keep the so mix mix panel is an event driven right. thing. So you just set mm-hmm. events within an app, and every time that event in JavaScript is triggered. Uh, you know, a tick is sent back to Mixpanel. Yep. Um, so as long as you keep those events in place, so you can change all the stuff you want, but you just keep that specific event in the app somewhere. And is it like m- an event would be sign up to the newsletter or yeah, an event would cl- click the sign up button. An event would be turn into an ad for Mixpanel. <laughs> um, but Mixpanel is focused more on mobile, correct? And Kissmetrics is more desktop. No, I mean, I, I would say they're they're somewhat interchangeable. I mean, we, we have uh, a desktop and a a web app and a mobile app all in mix panel. Um, you know, one is one to me is made specifically for apps. The other is kind of made for e-commerce and and those types of things. Mix panel is a very app driven type of thing. Yep. Um, We we use uh, RJ metrics. Yeah. Um, And that's more for like e-commerce specifically. specifically, It's it's funny. So RJ metrics actually was kind of doing the same thing that we do where they were advertising to, like everybody and then um 
they just kept getting bites by e-commerce people. And then they just quit selling their product to anybody but e-commerce. Yeah. And that's like, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that a couple months later, like they raised a boatload of capital, all their content yeah. switched to like e-commerce. So yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I think one of the keys is, is experimentation, you know, uh, and being deliberate about it, you know, understanding, you know, what we're trying to get out of it, making hypotheses and saying, OK, we think this is going to happen. Let's measure and see if it actually happens um, to try to find the right funnel mix, uh, yeah. especially the acquisition side, because, again, you can throw a lot of money away with a lot of different uh, opportunities, whether it's Twitter ads, Facebook ads blog content, all of that takes a lot of money and a lot of time to figure out exactly what works. So what I recommend is you don't try everything at once. <laughs> you take one or two uh, key channels that you want to test, see how it works, and you know build off the ones that actually are moving the needle or getting the customers that you want to have in your funnel. One thing that I think that uh, we haven't touched on as much is activation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, activation, maybe I'm wrong, but activation kind of is synonymous with engagement. So they come into your app, what is the metric that that means that they're actually uh, getting activated, getting engaged, clicking by, clicking by that kind of thing. Yep. So, Signing up for a newsletter. Yep. I mean, basically, you, you want them to take action. I mean, it doesn't do you any good if you drive a ton of traffic to your site and they look at your page and they walk away. Yeah. Um, or they go and they download your app and never use it again. So, what is that? What is that key metric? What is that thing you want to do to actually get them to use and, or and interact in some way with your brand? It's going to be different for every every company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, it really just kind of boils down to like, you know, if if what you've true what you've built is truly useful, um, they're going to come into the app, they're going to use it, and then they're going to. I mean, this gets into the retention section of it, but right. um, are people actually using what you're building? Yep. I think that comes down to it. The, um, um, I remember looking at actually Dave McClure now is like a two hour presentation online, which I highly recommend to everybody. I probably watch it every six months, um, about this funnel, about marketing like a pirate or we need a sound effect. (laughs) Um, but I remember cracking this open and looking at it. And thinking about all the stuff that we had to do to get our company started. And I was like, I don't have time for this. And then you start looking at acquisition and you look at it, you know, he's got all those like little logos of like Google AdWords and this and that, and then activation and all these tools that you can be using. And it was like so overwhelming at the time. Um, but I want to reassure people, like, it's just like anything where once you start doing it, it becomes kind of like second nature. And I think the hardest part of the funnel is actually defining what it means to you and your company. And once you do that, um, it's quite easy to kind of put process behind that. So, um, you know, whoever's cracking open and looking at the funnel for the first time, like, don't, don't worry. It was daunting. It's daunting to everybody. I think when you first look at it, what was the, um, for you guys like working in the funnel, what's kind of like the, the big scary thing within it that, that you saw that wasn't as, you know, nasty after you did it a few times. Well, for me, um, every app that I've ever worked on, um, and this is, this comes down to, you know, every company I've ever worked at. It's, it's all about user onboarding. So in this specific activation funnel, um, user onboarding, making sure that you take them through some sort of, so would they buy before you onboard or would you onboard and then they, they, they sign up typically and then they, which is part of the onboarding process. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, yeah, you have to make that as seamless mm-hmm. and as, you know, as possible, but I'm, I'm specifically talking about post sign up. Um, but, but kind of pre engagement with the actual app itself. Um, so you, have they given you money yet? No. Okay. 
you typically take it, well it depends uh depends. sometimes you put that money stage in the beginning if you're that type of right, business right but the companies that i've worked at that's not the case um so what you typically do is you take them through some sort of um you know, process where they, they gain understanding from what the app is. So it's like little tool tips and little things like that. Um, I found that in that section, you know, some insight is like, don't put all of the stuff right up front because mm-hmm. they're just going to click skip on all of it. Like, yeah. you know, you sign up for an app, Hey, here's what you can do. You can type in the chat. Okay. Click skip, you know, and then they, they click skip. So what we did was, um, does any of this make any sense? Yeah. 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 I'm following. Um, I'm super engaged right now. I'm about to activate all over. <laughs> um, what we would do is basically be very aware of what people needed at any given time in the flow. So if they, the second they wanted to think about chat, we would pop, put up a tool tip that said, hey, here's how, you, here's how to use the chat before mm. they even realize that that's exactly what they wanted to do. Was, was that based on previous interaction with customers to know that that's probably when yes, they- Yes, 100%, interact- and looking at the data and seeing when people drop off. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's that, it's a combination of a lot of different things. It's, it's, it's looking at the data, it's uh, understanding how they're using it based on customer support and all these kind of things. Because if you don't believe it, customer support is actually an incredible source of data. Uh, on, on your customer behavior, so we, you know, basically we would we would put onboarding tooltips, not sequential, all in a row where it's predictable and they can just skip them, but instead we would put them at seemingly random times where they they didn't feel like they had to skip them because they're not all in one big cluster, um, and they would just uh, they would engage with those ten times more, and it would set a precedent for what they believed the app was, which ultimately helps them retain. Yeah. I think a lot of people focus at the very top of the funnel, the acquisition side, and don't because that's the easiest thing to kind of get your head around. It's like, well, how do I get people to my site? How do I get people to use my app or whatever? And while that's great, if you don't have metric, right? Like just driving, you you have to drive. If they don't activate, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you've got to have people coming at the top of the funnel. But if you don't actually do anything with them after they get there, you've got a quote unquote leaky bucket, and you know you're just going to be pouring money. At getting people to your site, they're never going to come back. And so, you know, while it's important to understand that acquisition, it's typically where people start. It's like, well, who are my customers and where do they hang out and blah, blah, blah. The other parts of the funnel are probably more important for actually you making money and making a business around it. Yeah. Back, real quick, uh, back to what you were saying, Matt, there's actually software out there. Um, Bounce Exchange has been a really solid one that we've used, mm. but it's got kind of like some predictive tools in it. So um, it actually is measured on uh, like time on page and your mouse cursor. So um, like on our website, depending on what the customer does at BuluBox.com, we'll serve them up. Yeah. You know, if it kind of looks like their uh, their mouse is scrolling and they're going to cancel, like we'll have like a pop up <laughs> that's like don't you know like don't go now. Yeah. Or if just like their behavior indicates something, um, which those that software has been fast. Uh, there's Preact, there's Bounce Exchange, but but that whole world, uh, oh, I, yeah. I think that's where a lot of stuff is headed. Like what you said, like understanding what the user wants before they want it. Yeah. Um, and that's another software and, and that all seems daunting and intimidating, but it's, man, that's some of the best software we've ever used. Um, I think the other thing is that the funnel is actually changing. You know, I think it used to be where it was pretty linear where you could say, okay, first, who's my customer? Okay. They read this magazine and then they're going to do this particular thing and they're going to go here and then they're going to buy and then they're going to do this. 
I think nowadays there are so many ways that a person can get engaged with your company and it's, it's not something you can say they're definitely going to come in through path a, you know, there's path B, C, D, where depending on, you know, who they heard about it from or or whatever. So (laughs) you've got to think holistically about how does this funnel, it's not a linear funnel always. No, It's about where do your customers engage and do they come into the process midway versus something else? The days of like TV and radio and you know your your big handful of media like those are gone, and people are going to hear about you like a, a ton of different ways. Um, don't get me started on the whole university system because <laughs> like there there's still like classes that are teaching like that there's this like media plan and you buy these handful of things and then this like is like actually detrimental to teach that you know there's a lot of that is all kind of built within this world where there's just a few advertising channels. Well, guess what? There's thousands of them now online. And like, I think people really need to understand that as, you know, I think that was the biggest challenge for me as a, somebody 10 years in traditional marketing coming in and then doing a startup where it was like, wow, I actually knew nothing about what I was doing. So, uh, to wrap this all up, let's go to part two. Yeah. Are we ready? Are we wrapping? Yeah, we're going to wrap. Uh, so activation or acquisition and activation, uh, that's the top, top end of the funnel. Um, what's a quick summary we can give on that? I would say define acquisition and activation as it applies to your company. Make sure that you set, draw a line in the sand on what a goal is for those, uh, what goals are for those things. Um, in our, uh, in the example of our company, Acquisition is simply driving traffic to our website and activation is actually getting them to enter their credit card information and click to buy. Um, so I think you know that's important is defining those two things. I think uh, what you're ultimately trying to do is trying to find the highest volume of customers to put into the funnel that have the highest conversion at the lowest cost. Ultimately, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Um, you know, be very, very aware of what type of business you are because every every type of acquisition and activation is different for different types of businesses. So, yeah, like similar to what Paul said, just uh, think about what that means, what success means in those in those specific metrics. Don't copy; figure it out yourself. Yep. There's advantages to doing you know startup work in Washington D.C. that Silicon Valley itself doesn't have, and vice versa. I mean, there are the regionalism that made this country kind of what it is, and you know different cities having different strengths and weaknesses. This is Tim Sprinkle, author of Screw the Valley, a coast-to-coast tour of America's new startup culture. In this interview, Tim discusses the research that went into the book and his overall exposure into startup cultures around the U.S. He also gives his view on what makes these cultures tick. So um, I I guess to start off, if you can maybe state your name and and, uh, what you do. Sure. My name is Tim Sprinkle, and I'm a journalist and author specializing in small business. Excellent. And T- Timothy, so I think we have a lot in common. You know, we started the Inside Outside podcast to provide a you know inside look at startups outside the Valley. And you're the author of a new book called Screw the Valley, a coast-to-coast tour of America's new tech startup culture. So uh, first off, it's a provocative title. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you started and want to tackle the topic of startup hubs outside the Valley. Well, I started a few years ago. I had been covering really kind of the small business sector during the recession and kind of as 
we came out of that around 08, 09 and into 2010 and kind of noticed a lot more. I was getting a lot more press releases from places like Austin and Memphis and Orlando and just really kind of off the wall places for, for new companies, for where people were moving, where uh, deals were happening. And I just kind of just decided it was worth kind of digging in and taking a closer look at what was happening in places, more established places that we already know about, like New York, Austin, Boston, Seattle, but also, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska and, you know, Kansas City and Detroit and places like that where things are happening, but it may not be making the headlines yet. Exactly. So, so what did you find out? You spent about a year on the road, it sounds like. I did. And I, pretty much what I found out was that every place is different. You know, there's advantages to doing, you know, startup work in Washington, D.C. that Silicon Valley itself doesn't have and vice versa. I mean, there are the regionalism that made this country kind of what it is. And, you know, different cities having different strengths and weaknesses that still exists and it still applies to this industry as well. And the, people are finding out those, if you're building a robotics uh, startup, for example, or doing work in that area, you know, there's a lot of other people doing that sort of thing in, uh, in Silicon Valley, but there's also a community of that in, uh, in Boston. And there's, you know, a, like really kind of hubs built kind of building up over uh, different parts of the country where specific things are being done in, uh, in specific industries. And that's kind of taking what uh, the Valley did, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and creating a smaller version of that in all these different areas. So do you, do you see any core challenges or opportunities specifically about building outside the valley that, that's intriguing? I, I think the big challenge even today is, that is getting noticed and getting attention and you know finding investment funding if you need it. You know, the, the great thing about being in the Bay Area is that if you're doing a software startup, you're hanging out at the same bars with a lot of other people who are doing this sort of thing. The community there is very open and looking for the next big thing. If you're doing this sort of work in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, for example, you need to get in the plane and get out to California. You need to advertise yourself and really reach out. And to get that attention, it, it takes a little bit more work. And I'm, by a little bit, I mean a lot more work. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the phenomenon you mentioned, is it, it does seem to be happening everywhere. I, I think even in the first sentence of your book, it's, it's you know, blame the $4 toast. And you go on to talk about the, the challenges with uh, the costs and, and that rising in, in Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco and that. Well, you know, outside the costs, what are some of the reasons why you think this phenomenon is happening and, and what's drawing people to build outside uh, of the core tech center? Well, one thing I definitely found was that entrepreneurship and, and tech startups in particular are one of those hot topics that economic development folks are looking at and have been looking at for probably the last 10, 15 years. This is a almost a government initiative in a lot of these towns. So to really kind of grab onto this and find ways to attract these companies to, you know, end up in their town and keep their uh, their talent local. I, th I think that's a, a big push. There is support money out there. There's tax, break, tax breaks. There are, you know, communities of entrepreneurs who are willing to kind of bring people into the fold. And I think aside from the cost of the Valley, I mean, you can spend just as much in New York city as you can in San Francisco or the Bay area right now, if you really want to, um, it gives you, uh, for as difficult as it is to get, to get noticed as a, as startup founder in a different off the wall kind of market, you are, you immediately become, you know, really immersed in that community. It, if the community is, you know, a hundred different companies as it is maybe in say, you know, Kansas city right now, which is way, that's way undervalued in Kansas City. But uh, if, if your community is small, you can be a big fish very quickly. And right. that kind of gives you access, gives you just a way to, to make your mark, at least locally, very quickly and kind of get your feet wet. And that is very, very difficult to do unless you have a very sparkling resume and a lot of street cred in the, the Bay Area right now. 
Exactly. So which communities did you find that are, are doing well and why do you think they're doing well? I think the ones that are really succeeding right now are the ones where they have a champion. They have a, honestly a single person out front. And I'll use Boulder as an example. You know, Brad Feld out here in, in Colorado is really is the face of, he started out as the face of just Boulder entrepreneurship and the startups. He's kind of gone on to become one of the major faces of American entrepreneurship right now. But you know, Brad really does a fantastic job of not just bringing attention to the city and the, the work that's being done here and uh, kind of across the state, but also just really, if you want to find out what's going on in, in Colorado and in Boulder right now, you talk to Brad. That's just kind of what you do. It's an understand, understood thing. He's very involved, very active, very out there. And I think the, the cities that are doing the best with this right now have a person like that. They have a touch point. They have a central meeting place. They have a access, it's very easy to kind of get your hands around what's happening because you have a person essentially in charge who is is the authority on this stuff. And I, I see that in course of Boulder. I see that in Austin. I saw it's a little bit of that in Raleigh. You know, it, it just kind of depends on what the ecosystem, what kind of what stage of the development the ecosystem is in. Um, but it varies. It, the, one of the examples, I talked to some folks in Detroit actually the other day about this. And Detroit was the first city I profiled for this book. And I was there a couple of years ago. And the story there is that Dan Gilbert, the billionaire founder of uh, Quicken Loans and the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, is really putting a lot of his own money and his time and energy behind building up downtown Detroit, buying up real estate, fixing up commercial space, all of this stuff. A big part of what he's doing is funding startups and local startups. The problem they have there is that you know Dan is really is the face of Detroit startup culture, but at the same time, he's a billionaire founder who has a gazillion other things going on in his plate. You really can't. <laughs> Kind of flying to Detroit and calling up Dan Gilbert and having lunch with him to get you know to get an understanding of what's going on to Detroit. It's just not going to happen. He's too busy of a guy. So they're missing that champion. And I think that you know having some kind of touch point is a is a real key thing. I notice a lot a lot of different places across the country. So do you think there is a formula that people can follow, or is it really? It's, it's, what are some of the things that you're seeing that uh, that uh, kind of stand out or are different? I don't, I think that it's, it's leverage your regional and your local advantages. You know, to use Kansas City as an example, you know, KC is in the middle of the country, and it, it historically was a transportation hub because all the railroads went there. As a result of that, all of the telegraph, telegraph lines went there, so it turned into a telecom and uh, communications hub. You know, Sprint, PCS is there, Garmin is there, a lot of the big telecom and communications companies are there. As a result, you see a lot of folks either starting companies after having spent, you know, 20 years at Sprint, starting a related startup around that and being able to leverage that industry experience and also the local talent base. You know, you've got a lot of telecom folks in that area who are smart, capable, who know this industry very well. You know, if you want to do a telecom startup right now, you would be hard pressed to not do it in Kansas City for that reason. Really leveraging kind of what they have to offer and how their unique skill set kind of lends itself to that is a, is a huge advantage that they have that no one else has. Yeah. And you, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, a city's culture uh, and, and how that really plays an important role in, in driving this. And one of the issues I think we see across the United States is the, the culture of traditional corporate America or economic development or, or bigger corporations and that is significantly dif different than the kind of the uh, roll up your sleeves, startup scrappiness, fast uh, stuff that you hear uh, from that perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about how do you blend those cultures or what are you seeing is uh, to make that uh, uh, to make that leap or make that bridge between, you know, what's going on with the existing old guard versus some of the new uh, startup culture going on? Yeah, it's really tough. And I, I think if we were having this conversation you know, 10, 15 years ago, it would be a different 
approach to this, but one of the lasting impacts of the uh, the 08, 09 recession is that a lot of people lost their jobs and and the whole idea that, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and playing the game is your ticket to success and, you know, is the answer. A lot of that came into question. I think a lot of folks, you know, in the probably 40 and under crowd really got hit hard by that. And it kind of opened up a, a lot of just a lot of talk and a lot of thinking that, you know, if this isn't going to work for us, if, you know, doing what we're expected to do isn't going to work for us, you know, let's try something else. And that really kind of kickstarted the whole idea that entrepreneurship is a viable career choice. And that's one of the things that a lot of people talk to me about in different parts of the country where, you know, in Silicon Valley, if you, you can move out there and, and plunk down 10,000 bucks a month for rent and not have a job and still feel like you're, you're okay. Like you, you'll find something. Plenty of work out there. You have, if you have the right skill set, you're totally golden. You're good. I think if you were to try and do that sort of thing in Detroit, my parents would never call me back and never speak to me again if I try to pull that sort of thing on them. And that, that sort of attitude is, is slowly spreading you know, beyond some of the more established city centers for that sort of thing. But there, there's a leap of faith when it comes to this sort of approach to work. And you know, for better or for worse, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the whole idea of the gig economy and the part-time, you know, part-time employees having a full-time job and all that sort of thing is a generational shift and, and people are starting to kind of understand that you know what the options are out there what they can do it's just a, a matter of time and i think it's slowly starting to turn around it, it just that's one of the things that i kind of identified in the book as a, as a key component of a functioning ecosystem that's really kind of doing well is you've got people in the area who have done this who have similar backgrounds to, to you or to you or i or whoever have done this successfully and have come back and can offer their advice and say, you know, yes, quitting your job to start your own, you know, software startup seems like a crazy idea, but I did this four years ago. Here's what I did to, to make it happen. Here's what success looks like. Here's what reality looks like. All of these things. And that really, that's kind of the snowball effect and kind of how things start. Yeah, I think it's having role models obviously locally is important, but I think you're also seeing it from the standpoint of you're seeing these other communities starting to rise and, and, and you're saying, well, if, if Boulder can do it or if Austin can do it, we can do it here in our backyard as well. Right, right. So um, what can communities do to leverage uh, what's going on in the Valley uh, and what they, should they be building themselves versus trying to build locally? I, I think just having an understanding of what, what's going on, like, you know, what it, the way that a lot of folks have thought about tech over the last you know, 20, 30 years is, you know, you see what Apple introduces in, uh, you know, say September, that's your understanding of what the latest thing in tech is. You know, I think that there, there's so much more going on and two, three, four years out from right now, what we're, what we're experiencing, what we're thinking about in terms of technology is vastly different from what it is today. And I think it's important to kind of keep abreast of what is going on, what people are working on, what the kind of prevailing trends in terms of funding and, you know, just general stuff is out there because that really is the bleeding edge of, of tech in this country and, and worldwide. You know, what's Uber is obviously an example that started out there. That particular model has expanded to other things. I think if, you know, folks have paid more attention to Uber a couple of years ago, they might have seen the whole gig economy thing kind of coming and some different changes. But I think it's important for like local leaders, local business folks in small towns all over the country. It's you really just pay attention to what's going on out there. That's what you're going to be seeing from, you know, nationwide in a couple of years. If there's something that you as a local area can contribute to that, if you have some sort of expertise, if you have some established companies, if you have you know, entrepreneurs who are working in that area already, you know, really kind of leverage that, you know, and get involved. It doesn't have to just happen out there. You can play a part in that as well, wherever you are. 
Well, it seems to be that some of the better communities are, are making those bridges and connections to the valley more, uh, more transparent and more uh, easily established uh, to create those pipelines back and forth uh, of, of learning and, and networks. Oh, for, for sure. I mean, I, it, it goes both ways. I mean, it, the VCs I know out in the Valley and all the, the folks out there, they, they love being able to, to essentially tap into this giant knowledge base of people they may not have known even existed and, you know, ideas and experiences out there that can augment what they're, they're doing, can kind of push things in a different direction. It really is taking kind of the ideal of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship culture and just kind of blowing it out to the whole country. Yeah. And in fact, by doing that, you're actually kind of de-risking the, what is inherently a risky business of building a startup. Right. Are you seeing any uh, kind of mistakes that communities are doing or things that you know, everybody seems to be pile on, piling on with regard to a particular tactic that may or may not be effective? Um, I'm not sure in terms of mistakes, but I, I do think a lot, of, a lot of areas right now are putting a, a lot of stake into, into this as a job growth you know, economic driver for them right now. And it, it's a slow burn. Like you really can't count on five guys in their basement doing a software startup to really drive your, your city's, you know, economic development plan for the next couple of years. Like it, it's just, it's a slow seeding process. I think it's something that has been, it's, like I said, part of the culture on the West coast where they, you know, they try a bunch of different things. They see what works. They kind of build on what's working and then they try some other things. It's not a, you know, all or nothing proposition. And I think for a lot of these economic development folks in particular, it's, it's a different kind of area. It's not like offering tax credits to IBM to put their headquarters in your town. It's very slow. You, know, you may lose a lot of these bets and it may be a 10, 15, 20 year process before you start to see results and you know tax revenue based around this sort of thing. But it's kind of a, like a slow seeding process that, like I said, just takes time. Um, are there any, what, I guess, what are some of the most surprising stories that you heard by traveling around the country and, and, and tapping into these ecosystems? My favorite, honestly, all my favorite stories from the, all my travel were of essentially famous people doing really cool stuff with people who are just starting out. And that's one of the big things. And Brad is big into this. Brad Feld and Boulder is a big part of his just worldview is, you know, you always give back to, to the startup guys at the very lowest levels. And I'm talking about like, you know, Steve Case at AOL, uh, Michael Dell in Austin. Just honestly, coming to meet Michael Dell was at a uh, essentially a hackathon in Austin when I was down there, and just like offering advice, just kind of being a resource, and that is one of those things that you know having access to people like that, it makes you feel as a founder like you are a part of an industry. It, it, you know, startup life can be very isolating, can be very lonely sometimes because you're out there doing your own thing. You may not have you know much contact with the competition or anyone else, but if you're doing this sort of thing and you have access to like I said, those champions, those local leaders like that, who can kind of show you that this way works, it does. It kind of builds up your confidence. It makes it all seem a little bit more worthwhile. And there was honestly dozens of stories like that where the, these guys who were had been, you know, millionaires and billionaires many times over were coming back and doing a lot of the stuff, you know, giving of their time, giving of their you know, their actual money to to kind of help these folks out and kind of make it work the way it, it did for them. And that's that was always kind of fun and kind of cool. Actually, that's a nice segue because we always try to end our interviews with uh, what can our audience kind of give back to you? Honestly, more the more stories I get from uh, from folks on the road, the better it is for me. And just I've been this research for this book's ended, um, I guess, middle of last year, uh, 2014. And ever since then, it's just been a steady stream of, you know, here's what ha here's what's happening in, in Miami is one that I heard about late more recently and actually been down there. You know, here's what's happening in this town and that town. My company has moved from you know the Bay Area to who knows where. 
all over the place. Like you see a lot of this stuff. And like you just what is kind of going on out there and kind of how it's snowballing, and not just in specific areas like Austin and Boston and New York, but also, I mean, everywhere else. Like it really is a nationwide push right now. And I think that's great. And I'd love to hear all about, all about all the stories and everything that's happening. Um, it's fantastic for me. And it kind of lends itself to kind of keep the conversation going. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Tim Sprinkle for taking time to chat with us. Feel free to give Tim a shout out on Twitter and let him know that you enjoyed the interview. If you have a question for us this week, just reach out on Twitter at the IO podcast. And if you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, go ahead and do that now. Until next time, go build something big.